Well, hello and welcome again to Citizens. Uh, my name is David. I go by DC and I serve on the pastoral team here. So glad uh, that you could join us for worship today and it's my honor to share God's word. Uh, just a little bit of a heads up. After today, uh, starting uh, the month of July, uh, we're going to be hosting uh, special guest speakers uh, who will be coming and sharing a message uh, about community. Um, and, uh, you know, as you guys know, and if you've been here for a while, we feel it, uh, we see it. Our church has been growing uh, in numbers uh, and something that we are really thankful for, but we really want to grow deeper as well as, as a church. And, um, you know, the, the blessing of having a network of churches and, and friends is that, you know, they're serving in a different context, different city. They have their own unique voices and gifting to offer our community. And so whenever we get a chance to hear um, from someone else besides our pastoral team, I think it's such a blessing. And so um, for the month of July, look forward to it. I hope that we come with excitement and anticipation. And some of the speakers might look and, uh, familiar to uh, some of us here who's been uh, with this church for a while. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to take a short break from the Book of Acts in the month of July, and we'll start up again in August. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me uh, to the Book of Acts, chapter 9, and we're going to read ver uh, verses 32 through 43. And today I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, so if you can um, turn to your app to that specific translation. Uh, it'll be helpful for you to follow along. This series, specific series in the book of Acts, the Spirit-Filled Church, is a final installment for our year-long pursuit and journey uh, of learning about the Holy Spirit uh, and creating space, intentional spaces for us to experience more of him. And what we have in the person of the Holy Spirit is the very presence of Jesus dwelling within us which means our experience of Jesus isn't limited or capped to certain locations, spaces, or even events. We can feel him, we can be moved by him, we can be led by him anytime and anywhere because the Spirit takes residence in our lives. And what we need more than anything in this life is more of the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit's main role is to be a floodlight, his main objective is to spotlight Jesus. Uh, he's the ultimate deflector of glory. He wants to make much of Jesus in our lives. He's all about making Jesus known, making his love real to us, making his acceptance real to us. And so we need more of him. And so someone who is spirit-filled will resemble, sound like, and feel like the person of Jesus. And we here as citizens, we want to be a community that is deeply shaped and formed by this Jesus. And that is only possible to the degree we allow the Spirit to take hold of our lives and take hold of this community. And as we've been uh, in the book of Acts, we've been able to trace and better understand how the Spirit operates and works. Right, we've seen the Spirit embolden people to proclaim the good news. We see the Spirit bringing new life, creating new communities. He strengthens, he convicts, restores, and heals. And in our passage today, we're going to see another dimension of the Spirit's activity and how he can work in and through you and me. So let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us, starting at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints 
who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Amen. Let me go ahead and say a quick word of prayer for us. Father, we thank you so much for this time and space. Another opportunity for us to learn about you and about the Holy Spirit. God, we invite you into this place now. Open our hearts and ears to hear what you want us to hear. And may your spirit convict, encourage, and transform us from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the book of Acts is a very interesting book in that it moves like a hyperlink film. Right? It's a genre of film where the story is told in a nonlinear way, where there's multiple characters who have their own individual stories. But those characters are intricately related and are connected to one another. And it's only at the end where you see all these different people and their stories converge. And you start to realize how they're all connected. And one of me and Jane's favorite movie is Love Actually, which falls under this genre. Crash is another, uh, another one. And a more recent example is the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And so we see this type of dynamic storytelling from Luke, right, who's the author of Acts. He zooms in, he zooms out. He moves from one location to another. He introduces new players and figures of the early church, and then suddenly he pans back to the OG apostles in Jerusalem. And in the moment as we're reading, we don't really know why, why, why Luke does this and what's the significance of these characters and why it matters. It's only when you continue to read you start to realize how all these lives and how their stories are connected. You know, last week, Jason preached a very powerful sermon on new beginnings where we heard and learned of the radical conversion of an unlikely convert in Saul. See, Saul was an enemy of the church. His mission was to destroy the church, to imprison all of Jesus' followers. But on his way to Damascus, he had a powerful encounter with the risen Jesus. And in this encounter, his life and his mission changed forever. And we were reminded once again of God's unconditional grace. 
that is offered to everybody and everyone. No one is outside of the reach of God's love and grace. And so chapter 9 has been primarily about Saul and his conversion. Because this was a very important and momentous event for the early church. Another major step of growth and expansion of Christianity. But then suddenly and seemingly abruptly, Luke takes us back to Jerusalem with Peter. It's such a weird transition. And even how he introduces Peter is so underwhelming. The verse starts, Now as Peter went here and there among them all. If you look at the accounts previous to this, it's such a stark contrast, right? Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul and Ananias and their encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And when you go back, you see that the Spirit played a very explicit and vital role in all of these encounters, right? The Spirit gave Philip detailed instructions of where to go, where to wait. Jesus himself showed up to Saul's uh, to Saul on the road to Damascus. The Spirit shows up and speaks to Ananias and tells him what he's to do with Saul. The Spirit is coordinating all of these amazing events, but then we get here in Acts 9.32, we don't hear anything. Any mentioning of the Spirit? No angel of God speaking to Peter? We're just told that Peter was here, he's there, and he's among them all. You know, my wife and I, we've been, um, uh, you know, we didn't know each other that well before getting married. We dated for 10 months. We were engaged for three, and uh, we, we got married. So everything happened pretty much in a year. Uh, and we, did, we didn't know each other that well. And so you can imagine that first year of marriage, man, it was, it was rough. It was really, really rough. We were out of sync because we didn't know each other that well. And so it was about discovering and learning how to love each other and adjust to, adjust to each other's little quirks. And so one thing that I immediately realized about my wife Jane at that time was how particular she was with her drinks, right? Whether it's coffee, boba, or like an adult mixed drink, she was so specific of how that drink was made. And it's, it was like a science project for me to even remember her orders, like I had to take notes on my phones as I was ordering her drink. And I knew that it was really weird and really bad that even at McDonald's for the iced coffee drinks, it couldn't just be uh, an iced hazelnut coffee. It was, uh, can you put less ice, uh, four pumps of hazelnut, and two half and halves on the side. And I was like, Jane, you know that this is, this is McDonald's, right? It's a fast food joint. Like, so specific. And it took me so long to, like, know Jane's little, like, specs for her drinks. And after a while, I, I, you know, I start to know what level of ice, the level of sweetness, boba or no boba, and, you know, all the different details. So I can just go and order it. But it took me a long time. Um, you know, but the same for Jane, too. Like, I have some weird quirks about myself, like, especially when it comes to food. I, I need my soup, like, piping hot. Like, I won't drink lukewarm soup. And that annoyed Jane as well. But, you know, after 13 years now of marriage, like, we, we get each other. Like, we're a little bit more in sync where, to the point where we don't really have to communicate. 
We just look, look at each other, we see the eye, and, and we know, like, what each other wants. You know, it's so interesting because Peter wasn't given explicit instructions. No vision, no word. He is where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to do. And I think this reflects the, 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 that he was in sync with the Holy Spirit and God. That his relationship was so tight and so close-knit that he didn't need an angel to tell him where to be and what to do. You know, although the baptism, baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch and Saul's conversion were amazing stories of the Spirit's intervention, our passage here teaches us that the Spirit also works powerfully through the ordinary, through the mundane tasks of our lives. You know, when it comes to the question of God's will and the prompting of the Spirit, many of us were looking for a very specific, detailed answer. But what we understand about God is that he isn't interested in the outcomes as much as he is in our obedience. It's not about the results of our, decision, of our decisions that matter, but the relational process with God in our decision-making. And because this is true about God, more often than not, we're not going to get a voice from heaven or an angel telling us whether to date that person or not what career to have, what major to choose, where to live. Not that these things don't matter. God, God is far more concerned with our heart's posture and the motivation of our hearts when it comes to these things. See, we put a premium on the decision, but God looks at our devotion. Are we trusting him? Are we looking to him? Are we being faithful in the process? See, Peter here is being faithful to what he knows and what he can do because his mission was in Jerusalem. His mission was to the Jerusalem Christians. And what we see is through his ordinary obedience, we see the Spirit moving in powerful ways. J.D. Greer, in his book, Jesus Continued, an amazing book, I recommend it. It's all about the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. The Spirit's guidance functions something like steering a bicycle. It works only once you're moving. The Spirit steers as you obey God's commands. You start pedaling in obedience. He'll start directing. See, what often happens is there's a decision that we want to make. And because we, have, we don't have clarity, we're not given a very detailed instruction, we're kind of paralyzed with indecision. And we just kind of remain stationary. What J.D. Greer is saying is when we're moving... In acting in obedience, the Spirit guides and directs. So what does ordinary obedience look like in this season of your life? What are the things that you can do that God is calling you to do? What does faithfulness look like? As Peter goes from here and there, he finds himself at Lida, a city 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And there he met a man named Aeneas. We're not told much about him or how he got paralyzed, but we know that he's been bedridden for eight years. This is what it says in verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Man, there's so much here in this one verse that, that we need to unpack. The first thing is Peter says his name. 
which doesn't seem like much, but actually is so powerful because it's so pointed. It's so personal. It's so intimate. And it's interesting, when we look at Jesus' accounts in the Gospels, when he heals, we don't actually hear the names of these people that Jesus, Jesus heals. They're identified by their disability, the paralytic, the demon-possessed, the blind, the mute. We're not given names. But here in both of, these, both, both of these encounters with Peter, the names are given and the names are uttered. You know, it's so easy for us to interact with the gospel in generalities. Right? We understand that God died on the cross, that he forgives sins, that he loves but there's a disconnect and a dilution of grace when we're unable to see and experience him personally and intimately. And that's why wedding vows are so powerful because it's so clear who who you're making the vow to and who's making the vow. I, David Chong, take you, Jane on, to be my lawfully wedded wife. When Jesus calls you and me, he calls us by name. He sees you. He knows you. He knows knows where you've been, what you're struggling with. He knows every one of our needs. And he calls you by your name. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. This can also be translated, he is making you whole. He is making you whole. You know, I've always struggled with miracle stories. You know, growing growing up in the church, the idea of salvation was almost always presented as a distant future spiritual reality. And so the tension I felt was, why are these miracles even necessary? What purpose do they serve? Eventually, our bodies and minds will deteriorate anyways. And so I saw these miracles as a temporary suspension of the inevitable. But when we take a look at the gospel story, the way in which Jesus came to you and me, it makes sense. Miracles make sense. The incarnation, the fact that he took on flesh, that he inserted himself into our experience, tells us of what life Jesus came to offer us. And that is life to its fullest. Not just the spiritual, but the physical, emotional holistic life to its fullest. See, if God wanted us to just simply cognitively know what grace and love was, his word would have been sufficient. Here's the Bible. You can read about it. But that's not what we get. He wanted us to tangibly, physically, and emotionally experience them. And so he came to us in flesh, in human flesh, telling us who he is, what he is like, what grace is, what love is, what mercy is. That's why Jesus came not only proclaiming the message of the kingdom, but demonstrating what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like through miraculous healings. And so the miracles of Jesus does two things. First, to demonstrate that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. Secondly, miracles were a protest against the destructive effects 
of sin in our lives and in this world. So miracles weren't so much of a suspension of the inevitable, but rather a snapshot of the life God originally intended us to live. A life without defects, a life without deficiencies or disease. You know, every one of us sitting here in these chairs knows and strongly feels that things aren't how they ought to be. Just turn on the news, another shooting. You get that phone call and you hear that it's cancer. Relationships are strained. We are struggling in our marriage. Our depression isn't getting better. The panic, panic attacks are getting more frequent. Financially, we're barely getting by. We can't find a job. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We feel it deeply. If you're here today and you're overwhelmed by brokenness, know that these words that Peter says to Aeneas is also being spoken over you. Jesus Christ is making you whole. You may not see it. You may not feel it. You don't know what's going on. But he is committed to making you whole. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't stopped working. He isn't done with you yet. And after these words that Peter speaks, Aeneas is miraculously healed. And then Peter gives him a very interesting instruction for him to make his bed. And this tells us that wholeness is a process and a journey that God invites us to be a part of as well as something we're called to live into. God invites us to it and we are to live into this wholeness. This bed he's been lying in for the past eight years, the very thing that defined his existence, the space he couldn't escape, the dreadful bed that he was confined to, no longer had precedence. He no longer was defined by his disability. So make your bed. You know, all of us, we have relics in our lives, things of the past that still hold power over our lives, some that we're not even responsible for, they're so difficult to leave behind and move past. Memories of shame and guilt, you just can't shake them off. It's like a parasite constantly sucking the joy out of our lives. And even though we know of God's forgiveness, we've been given new identities, there's these residual effects of our sins that plague us to this day. It condemns and it seeks to define us. Right? We see someone, we hear about someone, or a memory pops up on our feed, and we're immediately transported back to that place of pain. And we quickly forget who we are, the gifts we've received of grace, love, mercy, and new life. See, each morning that Aeneas probably went, that Aeneas woke up from, he probably went to the routine of making his bed, which served as a constant reminder of Jesus Christ, who made him whole. What does it look like for us to make our beds today? You know, there are voices that we're constantly listening to. It can be from the enemy. It can be our own inner voice that accuses and condemns. But here's the good news. As many of the voices that we hear, what we have in Scripture 
a greater amounts of affirmation from our Savior. He says, you're justified. He says, you're forgiven. The cross has freed us. His promises affirm our status as his children. So for some of us, making our bed means simply starting off your day in prayer. And taking a hold of the promises that we have. And saying, I'm not going to believe in those lies. I'm going to hold on to the truth. For others, making your bed actually means for you to reach out for help. The church has resources. Maybe it is counseling that you need to address these old relics. But God invites us to be active in pursuing wholeness and living into it. And in the same way Aeneas heard his name, I hope you hear your name. And in the same breath that you hear your name, that you will hear the name Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He's yours. News that Peter was in the area made its way to Joppa, a coastal city, 11 miles from Lida. It's modern-day Jaffa in Tel Aviv right now. Disciples urgently called for him because a woman named Tabitha has just passed away. Tabitha was described as a disciple of Jesus, which is a really rare designation. The Greek word for disciple rarely shows up in the singular feminine, methetreia. And it speaks to who Tabitha was. She was an amazing woman. She was most likely single or widowed because in those times, women would be identified by their male counterpart. But the fact that a man was not mentioned at all tells us that she was probably alone. We also know that she was a very successful businesswoman who made clothing. She had a home with an upper room where her body was laid to rest. She had dual citizenship. Luke gives her, her, uh, lets her let us know of her Greek name, Dorcas, right? which is a very odd name. Um, she was a type of Mother Teresa. She was charitable and generous. Her, her particular mission was to love and serve the widows. We know this because when Peter arrives, the widows were grieving, wearing the very clothes that Dorcas has made for them. You know, Tabitha is an example of someone whose religion was pure and undefiled. She loved Jesus and expressed that love to the most vulnerable of that time. She was struck with a sudden illness. and She died. A huge loss for the church and for the community. And so Peter arrives on the scene and he gets to work. Verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Another amazing miracle. Back-to-back miracles. You know, accounts like the ones we've read can be so frustrating We can feel disconnect from these supernatural events. They seem so far removed from our own reality. So what's the point? What's what's the point of these miracles? What's the point that God is trying to teach us? You know, these events should be familiar to us and reminiscent of something we've seen before. Peter is repeating the same miracles that Jesus did. In John 5, Jesus heals a paralytic, tells him to take up his mat 
and go on his way. In Mark 5, Jesus heals Jairus' daughter from the dead. And as mentioned earlier, these miracles were not an end of themselves. The truth is both Aeneas and Tabitha, as they continue to live their lives, would face different challenges. They will suffer in different ways. And ultimately, they'll face death. Miracles were a signpost pointing to a greater reality, to something else that God is doing. So these weren't isolated one-offs. Aeneas and Tabitha's healing is building up to something that God is doing. God is doing something with their lives. You know, our passage ends really oddly. So weird. Verse 43. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now going back to the hyperlink film genre. What, what does this have to do with anything? How is Aeneas, how is Tabitha and Simon the Tanner related? What, what's the connection between all these different individuals? Why did Luke think this was necessary to include in his story? Simon the Tanner. See, tanning was a despised trade in the Jewish culture because they had to handle dead animals. They made leather goods out of these dead animals. And so they were seen as ritualistically unclean. You weren't to associate with tanners because they were unclean. And, and there was a lot of prejudice against tanners to the point where wives were given provision to divorce their husband who was a tanner simply because they couldn't stand the smell. Isn't that crazy? But then we t- were told that Simon the tanner hosts Peter and Peter takes him up, up on the offer. What is going on? How are these miracles in Simon related? Here, here it is. See, up to this point, what we've seen in the early church is that the early church was composed of a very homogenous community. The church in Jerusalem was composed of Jewish Christians. And when the gospel reached Samaria, the church was Samaritan, mostly consisting of Samaritan. We have yet to see the inclusion of Gentiles actually into the Jerusalem church. They were separate. They were separate. And so something is happening here. See, Peter going from here and there, being present with those in need, healing the paralyzed and raising the dead and staying at the home of Simon the Tanner, although we think is random, is actually preparing the church to widen its doors, to extend its reach to the Gentiles. You're going to see this in Acts chapter 10 when Peter encounters the Roman centurion, Cornelius. There's going to be a big debate whether Gentiles can be included, and Peter's voice is going to be so important. And what's happening here is Peter is establishing his apostolic authority. It's being built up so that church can widen its doors. See, I'm not sure if Peter was aware, but his ministry in Lida and Joppa was necessary for what's to come next. You know, in the moment, we may not know what's going on or why this person matters. But a truth we can be certain of is that through each person and each like circumstance, God is fulfilling his purpose. You know, the faithful presence of each and every individual 
contributes to the story of grace. You know, Peter visited these cities to check in with the saints. Whenever you see the word saints in the Bible, it's never in the singular. It's always in the plural. It's referring to the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ. And that tells us that this faith is not meant to be lived out alone. Grace forms, yes, new life, but it forms new communities that we're to journey together with. And it's actually in community we experience in real time, in real life, what grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness is. Here's the thing about faithful presence. Not only do we see it in Peter fulfilling his mission, but we also see in Aeneas allowing Peter to come to his bedside, being fully present to listen to Peter's words and heeding his instructions to make his bed. We see the disciples being fully present and available for Tabitha. They run to Lita to get to Peter to come. We see the widows being faithfully present with their beloved who's passed away. And again, we see Peter being faithfully present, getting down on his knees, praying for a miracle. And even with Simon the Tanner, his faithful presence invited Peter into his home. And Peter, being faithful to the gospel that breaks cultural barriers, takes him up on his offer. Everyone's telling a story. Everyone's playing a part. When we see the faithful being fully present, lives and communities are radically transformed. The faithful presence of everyone. Everyone matters. That's the crazy thing. The faithful presence of Peter, but also the faithful presence of the grieving widows. The faithful presence of the healthy and strong who ran to Lita, but also the faithful presence of the disabled and the weak. What we have here in Acts 9 is a very beautiful picture of the diversity of the church. Both the strong and the weak, the capable and the helpless, the generous and the needy. See, we live in a world that says that your team and your organization is as strong as its weakest link. And the objective is to get rid of the weak link. Not so in the church. Everyone, every part, everybody has infinite worth and value to the gospel story. And it's the love of Christ that knits all these unique threads together to display the tapestry, the beautiful tapestry of grace that we are to display for the world to see. So brothers and sisters, please listen very carefully. Your faithful presence is a gift to God and to others. Whether that presence is one of desperate need or brokenness, or if your presence is one of strength and confidence, both are a gift to this community, and both are a gift to God. You know, we struggle with this, especially a community like this in L.A., predominantly Asian-American. We don't want to be a presence that's burdensome. We don't want to be a presence that's, that's broken. We only want to be a presence if it's pristine and put together. And so what happens here? We pretend. We put on a charade. We put our base, best faces on. Even though we are broken inside, we just pretend, thinking that this is actually what God wants. 
This is what people are going to be, uh, benefit from. But that's not the case. What we see here in Joplin Lita is a community that is deeply broken, but also deeply capable, both together, inviting each other into those spaces. You know, the, the sad thing is when we pretend, we're unable, we're not giving an opportunity for the love of Christ to really seep in deep, deep into our lives. We can't experience wholeness because we're not letting others in. And we're not letting God into those spaces. What we know about Jesus and the Holy Spirit is that he's drawn to and responds to and graciously responds to need. Not the self-sufficient, but the desperate. Not the righteous, but the lowly and humble. When we allow ourselves to be who we are and be fully seen, we can experience the radical, transformative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to put us together, to piece us together, to make us whole. Wholeness. We all want it. But this idea of wholeness captured in the gospel is, is found in this idea of already, but not yet. It's already here in that faith in Jesus offers us real forgiveness. We're given a new identity as children of God. We can experience real freedom from addiction and sin. There can be a real peace and comfort even in the midst of suffering. These are real gifts that are available for us to experience today. But then there's a not yet component to wholeness. That is, we are awaiting glory, a final state of glory that Jesus promises when he comes back for you and me. And that is a life of no more pain, no more sin, no more disease, and no more death. A place of glory that Jesus secures for us. See, wholeness is both our present-day endeavor, but it's something that we also are waiting for at the end. And it's only in Jesus Christ where we experience both. The church and its people are God's instrument of choice to help us in our journey to wholeness. And in this journey, it's not about who finishes first, but it's actually about finishing together as a family. You know, we are all here in different places in our faith journey. You may not have much to give. You may think that you don't have much to give. And actually, what you can offer our church is your brokenness. Your presence is a gift. There are others here who are strong, capable, in a season of strength. Your faithful presence, too, is a gift because you can help carry those that are weak. Every single person matters in this community because when we come together, we are telling a story. When one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. And you may not know what your presence offers to this community right now. You may not even know what it, what it looks like in the broader mission of Jesus. I don't think Aeneas and Tabitha or Simon were sure either of what they were doing. But what we learn is that being faithfully present through ordinary obedience, to allowing people into our broken lives, we can see communities transformed and others experiencing that transforming grace. You know, we all long to be made whole. We think we can find it in ourselves or in this world, 
in a person, in a relationship, in a job, in possessions. And so we work hard to attain these things, trying to fill the void that we all have in our hearts. And at best, best, we temporarily fill the holes. Because nothing on this earth, no created thing, can actually fill the everlasting desire that we have in our hearts. But in Jesus Christ, we have an eternal hope. He is alive and well. He offers us an everlasting life, an inheritance that does not expire, a status that does not change, a love that is permanent. He is what you're looking for. And so if you're here today and you have yet to make or invite Jesus into your life and you long to be made whole and you realize that you're not enough, this world is not enough, know that Jesus is calling your name. And he's offering wholeness to you. Jesus on the cross was broken so that we could be made whole. He absorbed guilt and shame so that we can be free. In his darkest hour, he was abandoned so you and I could be seen and accepted. His cries went unheard so you and I, when we cry out to God, we will hear back. Brothers and sisters, I hope that today, You hear your name, and in the same breath, you hear the name of Jesus Christ. You guys are linked together once and for all. So church, let's continue to seek Jesus, pursue him together, depend on him together, and may we be a community fully present with him and with others to his glorious name and for the good of the city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that his name and our names are forever linked. There's so much brokenness, brokenness around us. There's brokenness within us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will fill this space, fill every one of our lives, and may you make us whole. Thank you for the gift of community. Thank you for our relationships where we can journey together towards wholeness. God, you invite us to come as we are. Give us the ability to be vulnerable and be open about our weaknesses. And through this community, may we experience this transformative grace that you offer each and every one of us. Help us, Lord. Give us the strength to carry each other's burdens shape citizens to be more like you. And I pray for those in this room who needs to hear your voice, to hear their names, and to hear the name of Jesus Christ with that, that you will speak to us. Let us know that you're here. Help us to feel your presence. Give us hope this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.